Welcome to the Seeds of Wisdom series. We hope you enjoy today's guest. Disclaimer, the people sharing their perspectives on this episode are not mental health professionals. We are speaking from our own personal experience on the subject matter. We sought mental health support from professionals. If you are suffering, please seek appropriate support. It's worth it because you're worth it. Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of Seeds of Wisdom brought to you by From a Loving Place with author Rachel Wolf. I'm Rachel Wolf and today I am so excited to have author, memoirist, Mary Beth O'Connor and her book is From Junkie to Judge and I was blessed enough to get a pre-copy of the book to read for this and I could not put it down and I am someone who reads a lot of memoirs but rarely about addiction and trauma have I read a memoir so incredibly powerful that I was like screaming out loud, yes, 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 throughout the whole book because of how detailed and how authentic and honest she gets in this book. I'm going to let Mary Beth introduce herself before we jump into the topic of accepting incremental progress, which is such an important piece of the puzzle. So with that, Mary Beth, please introduce yourself. So hello, yes, Mary Beth O'Connor. The full title of the book is From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Uh, I see the short version of my story is that child abuse led to child addiction. I was not really bonded to my mother. She wasn't connected to us, which was problematic. Um, she could be violent. She was violent at times. But when I was nine, we moved in with my stepfather, who was very violent to her. Uh, verbally, emotionally, physically, sexually violent to me. And it was a, a household where it wasn't every day. It was that you never knew what was going to set them off or when it was going to happen. And so there was, it was just a high stress environment with little control. I did develop some techniques to reduce the episodes, but I could not eliminate them no matter what I did. So I picked up alcohol, which was my first drug when I was 12. And then I moved on to pot, then pills, did a lot of acid my sophomore year of high school. And when I was 16, I found my drug of choice, which was methamphetamine. And at 17, I was shooting meth on a regular basis and in full bore addiction when I graduated high school. I did manage to put it under better control and I emphasize better control in, in college for the first few years. I mostly used alcohol, pills sometimes, coke sometimes, mostly on the weekends, but I had a really bad multi-assailant rape in college, moved in with a violent boyfriend, and I started using meth again in January of my senior year, and I did not get sober until I was 32 years old. And so by then I was having a lot of physical problems. I had destroyed most areas of my life. And I went into rehab where they told me that the 12 steps was the only recovery approach. And that was not a good fit for me for multiple reasons. So I had to build a plan that worked for me. I pulled the ideas from rehab and from 12 steps that I thought would be helpful. And I just ignored the other ideas. And then I found several secular options and participated in those programs as well and just put together a sort of a synthesized hybrid approach that has so far led to 28 years of sobriety. Um, professionally, when I 
started to build back up. I had to start at a low level job, but eventually at six and a half years sober, I went to Berkeley Law School. And at 20 years sober, I was appointed a federal administrative law judge. I took early retirement in 2020, and now I'm an advocate about multiple paths to recovery. I talk about the trauma substance use disorder connection. I'm on the board for She Recovers Foundation and Life Brings Cycler Recovery. And I talk to as many people as I can by doing things like this podcast today. Oh, well, thank you so much for being here. And obviously, with the recovery and all of that, your book covers so much range. And then it goes into the fact that you became a federal judge on top of that. So you were able to keep up your schooling through through a drug addiction, teenage drug addiction, and keep up your grades. You want to talk a little bit about that? So in high school, by the time I started really using meth a lot, it was sort of towards the end of my junior year. And I applied to college, of course, in the fall, I think, and got accepted by January. So by the by the time I was getting more and more out of control, I mean, I had problems controlling alcohol, I had problems controlling the other drugs, but meth was a whole new level for me. By the time it got really, really bad, I had already been accepted to college. And so I was just sort of uh, running the clock out on high school. And my senior year, the last few months, I did miss a lot of school, but I had always been a good student. And I said I had family problems and they let me make up the work. And then when I went to college, I did do better for those couple of years. And so, cause I wouldn't, I really wouldn't have been able to keep up college. It would have been impossible if I, if I entered college and kept going where I was when I graduated from high school, it would have been an impossibility, but I did get some partial control for the first couple of years. And so that allowed me to graduate from Berkeley. Uh, I mean, I will tell anybody who wants to gain any amount of compassion for addiction and understand the the connection of trauma and addiction, please read this book, please. Because honestly, it helped me get to a point of compassion. Like I'm a compassionate person, but addiction is one of those things that I can, it's, it, I have, I have guards around myself around sometimes. And, and sometimes it's harder to break through that compassionate wall, but understanding it's, from such a deep, authentic level of the trauma really helped me understand on a level of studying it from the college level, because that's what I studied was was all this kind of stuff. But from the humanity level, it just helped it get to a different place. And so jumping into that seed of accepting incremental progress when you have gone through so much both trauma and addiction what does incremental progress look like to you i mean for one thing i think for those of us in an abusive household there is not a strong connection between your actions and the consequences right and so that can be problematic because you don't really see that my efforts have this outcome. And so you're not really brought up with that sort of idea, that experience. And then when I went into recovery, 
I know I, and I think all the women in my program, we wanted recovery to be much, to be quick, six months to a year. It should be like, we never picked up a drug, right? People wanted to have their kids back in three months or, you know, or, or for me, I had a Berkeley education and high grades. And so it would have been nice to be able to leap into a job that my education qualified me for, but that wasn't where I was. And that wasn't a realistic first start. So it was really about trying to scale back expectations or hopes and think about um, what, where am I really? And realistically, what's my initial plan? What's my, what are my initial goals? What are my first steps back into the real world, back into um, really for the first time for me into developing professionally, repairing my relationships, improving my physical health, my mental health, uh, you know, with the trauma, I had PTSD. So it was all of those things. There was no leaping that was going to happen over, you know, the hurdles. It was really going to have to be a, a slow process. Well, and I think that's such an important thing is understanding that it doesn't jump and, and, you know, we start taking steps and then there it's like our old patterns might come up and sneak up and go, Oh, Hey, look over here. I mean, you know, this is easier because it's what we did for 15, 20 years. And that doesn't even matter if it's addiction or just any kind of behavior pattern that is not healthy for us. And I love what you said, because it reminded me of when I was in Al-Anon, my sponsor had said to me, how old are you? And at the time I was 40. And she said, look how long it took you to get here. That's a lot of patterns. That's a lot of behaviors. So, you know, understanding that we have to undo <laughs> and then rebuild is such an important part. What was for you the most challenging aspect of accepting getting to the place of not just knowing it yeah yeah I should but really accepting incremental progress well it makes me think of a couple of things one of them is that for me um a lot of I think because of the trauma and just my general you know the PTSD that I didn't know I have and the severe anxiety that it caused, my perspective was always negative. I mean, I was always hyper aware of the losses of what I didn't have or what I could have had if I hadn't been you know, stuck in a drug addiction for all those years. That was natural to me. I was very aware of all that. And so for me to, to see progress, I actually had to consciously force myself to pause and look backward. How far have I come in these three months, in this six months, in this one year to really teach myself and to see that forward momentum, to see, to be able to see the progress and also to reassure myself that there was no indication so far that I had sort of peaked out on where all my progress or where I was headed. Look what, how much you've done in six months. You're still moving forward. You're still having positive things. And, and that really that re process repeated and repeated really did make me get sort of calmer about the fact that, uh, yes, I might 
not have everything that I want, but in the long run, I can certainly have a vast improvement over where I am today. I still didn't believe I would end up where I am. I never even imagined that my life would be as good as it is, but I could, with that technique, start to believe it was going to be better. You know, it was going to be better. It was going to be adequate. I would have what I needed, but it took, it took really forcing myself to stop and look backward to get to that level of understanding. Now, and, and what I love about both listening to you in other podcasts that I've heard and reading your book is you don't just talk about incremental progress in your recovery or your career, in your relationship too. And with your relationship, um, which started while you were in active ad addiction and it helped kind of push you <laughs> in your own way to work, start even go, taking that path. So will you talk a little bit about that aspect? Yeah. So my partner at the time, um, you know, we, we, when we met, I was using, but he lived away, you know, 40 miles away from me. And he thought I was just using on the weekend. Like I was a casual, you know, user. And it wasn't until we moved in together that three year and a half years later that he realized, oh no, this, she has a problem. <laughs> and um, it was a surprise to him. And he still didn't really, he never really fully appreciated that I felt unable to stop. I mean, obviously I could stop because I did, but it didn't feel that way when I was immersed in it. He thought, well, she can stop anytime she wants. And so anytime I would sort of temporarily moderate, you know, you know, in an, a, an addiction, you try all kinds of techniques. I try to, you know, only use from Friday to Sunday or only every other week or, you know, all these different patterns. He would think, well, maybe she's getting it under control when really that was not going to happen. Um, so by the time I went into rehab, he was he was done. I and mean, we've been together for for nine years at the time, and he was ready to throw me out. And even in rehab, he came to the the uh, couples counseling sessions that they offered, but he was very angry about the whole thing that he felt like he I had just abused him, not you know, emotionally abused him. I wasn't a partner he could trust or rely on. He didn't really think it was ever going to work, which terrified me, you know, because it sounded like it was over. Um, but he did let me come home and we went to couples counseling for several years and over time through the counseling and hard work, you know, both of us having to listen to each other and having to take some responsibility, but also a lot of it was about, I wasn't doing that behavior anymore. And so he let me stay long enough to see that, oh yeah, she's behaving in a new way. She's actually making progress. She's going to her meetings. She's in therapy. She's improving. Her interpersonal skills, while still not good, are better. <laughs> um, and so it was that 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 hope, that time that he saw me moving forward that allowed him to stick it out. And so at about a year and a half, I think we were pretty sure, yes, we're going to make it. And then we got married. Um, uh, I had three years sober when we got married. But even then, we still had more work to do. I mean, you know, relationship is a constant ongoing yeah. improvement, right? So, but we did, we did work hard at it. And it really did take time from when I went to rehab. It really was probably close to a year and a half before we both felt like, all right, this, this is going to stick. We're going to make it through. Yeah. And, you know, you say a key word is we worked hard because it's not just if there isn't one addict and the other person's not an addict, it's not one person that just the addict has to do the work. Both people do because the patterns that have been created in the relationship have to shift. 
That's right. And I had some anger of my own. I felt, why didn't you help me more? You know, like if you saw me, if I was ill with anything else, you would have, you know, done something, but he just felt so overwhelmed and he didn't know what to do. And he is the kind of guy that does get overwhelmed with that kind of thing. But I had some anger myself. Like you did not call, you know, treatment facilities or try to get me in. You just sort of stood back and watched. And so we had to talk that through as well. It was both sides. But mostly you're right. We just didn't know how to communicate in a healthy way. We had established bad patterns and we had a, both had a lot of emotions. So lack of skills and high emotions is a recipe for disaster unless you work hard to improve it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and if you hadn't grown together, it would have been natural for you to grow apart, but because you were both willing to grow together, that you know, it moved forward, which I love. I love that part of your story too, is because it's it it's so vividly shared the incremental in every aspect of where you were and and your experiences and you know, and then because I can follow you on social media like everybody else, I can see what you're doing now with all of it. And it's it's just such a hopeful story because I think sometimes we can convince ourselves that because we went through this, whether it's the trauma or the addiction or whatever, because I did this, because I went through this, I can't get here. And that's, I feel like why your story is so important because it's not just career. It's not just recovery. They all went together as you grew. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm, a couple of things there. One, the reason I call the story Junkie to Judge is I really feel like it's a short um, phrase to say from no matter where you start out, you can have success in your life. And I mean, for me, I, I try to remind people, I had a child abuse history. I had a child sexual assault history. I had two multi-assailant rapes. I moved in with a violent boyfriend. Um, I lived with stress, you know, most of my, all of my teenage years with my stepfather, and I had a 20 year substance use disorder. And yet at 32, I was be, be able to begin the forward momentum and to move forward from there. So it, to me, it is a way of saying, you know, don't give up on anyone. Let's do what we can to help everyone because they can get better. They may not know how. They may not believe it, but they can. Let's encourage it. Let's, you know, if we, to the extent we can, those of us in recovery, be open to to remind people or reassure people that it's possible. Um, all of those things that you said, absolutely. Yeah, it's well, and it's and it takes a personal story because it's not just a, those outside sources and and like as I'm sure you know, we can't change or fix anybody they have to see it themselves. And I just feel like sometimes when we tell our stories so raw, so authentic, that's when they see the potential of that in themselves. Yeah, it was important for me. I, I am not a 12-step person and I talk about that in my book, but I will say one of the things that I did uh, get out of 12 steps when I went to the meetings was the drug logs, you know, the stories. A lot of people don't like them and over time, you know, they wear, but in the beginning, for me to see someone standing up and talking and telling her story of how um, how she had shot meth or heroin or whatever, and her life had been destroyed like my life had been destroyed. And then I'm looking at her 
and she has six months or a year or two years sober and she looks healthy and she has a job and she's paying off her debt and you know she's able to engage people in a positive way that did give me some hope that if she could do it I could do it too and so now it's my turn to stand up and offer that hope to others I yes I I love that and thank you so much for coming on and explaining the incremental progress and the accepting of it and accepting is such a key part because first we have to see you know we have to see it become aware of it so that we can shift and grow but if we don't accept it we're actually creating obstacles you know so thank you yes yes i mean sometimes when i saw people that were struggling it was because they were trying to leap forward too fast and so it can be a better technique to just accept the next step it's i talk about how did i become a judge you know how i became a judge what's the right next step for 20 years that's how I became a judge, right? I mean, it was always about what, where, where am I now? What's my right next goal? And what do I need to do to achieve that goal? And then work toward that. But it wasn't about knowing what I wanted in 20 years. You don't have to look that far forward. Just what's the right next goal? What do I need to do to reach that right next goal? And then I'll think about the goal after that, you know, incremental step-by-step. Step. That's really how life works. We just don't always see it or appreciate it or understand it. And if we can be conscious of it and make conscious choices and do a thoughtful analysis, I think it's to our advantage. Yeah. And, and what you were saying is like about it what's right step for you may yes. not be the right step for somebody else, but it's being able to step back far enough to go, okay, this is working for me. This isn't working for me. This is, this step isn't the next right step, but this way is, <laughs> you know, and because there is no one right way. Yeah. And the other side of that is sometimes when we try to carry out what looked like the right next step, we realize it isn't. And so it's okay. And you should be constantly reassessing because until you start to head towards something, you don't always really understand what it's going to be. So it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to update your analysis. It's okay to revise your goals as well. Wow. So that is so, so important right there, because that for me, I could get stuck with everybody. If I thought other people thought I should do something, get stuck in that path that other uh, people wanted for me. And it never led to a good place. I mean, and it would constantly track for me, it's the PTSD. It would put me into that freeze, freeze response because I knew it wasn't right. Yet I didn't know how to stand up for myself. So I went into that shell, <laughs> you know, and so understanding that just because something's right for one person and it can look different for you and you can try the things and if it doesn't work to go, okay, reassess, reassess is such an important step. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So with that, this is the end of the episode, but Mary Beth has agreed to stay on with me longer to go beyond the seed and talk more about trauma and addiction which will be available only on the YouTube channel, the From a Loving Place YouTube channel. So if you're listening on any other uh, platform, please, if you want to hear this extended conversation, go there. Thank you so much for coming on. And if you are listening to this, just trust that you were meant to hear what something in here. So thank you.
And thanks for having me. (laughs) Make sure to follow the links that accompany this episode. You will learn a lot more about today's guest and see what they have going on now. You will also get all the links to follow them on their journeys if this seed resonates with you. Come back next week for another Seed of Wisdom. If you loved what you saw or listened to, don't forget to subscribe to the channel.